Hello, everybody out there. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. It is episode 116. Yep. I'm Dr. Shiloh. And hello, Dr. Scott. How hello, are you? Dr. Shiloh. I'm fine. What's up Good. with your voice? You got some allergies uh, going on there? Jeez. <laughs> yes, got that I do. Vo- got that vocal fry going A on. A little bit. Yeah. That's okay. I wanted to move from like my nose that is so itchy right now to my throat and I'll be happy, but maybe not for multiple recording sessions. That's probably not a good thing. Yeah. But hey, November's upon us. Here we are chugging right along through the end of the year and we have a really good episode for you. Some good stuff for you this month, actually. Let's get into a little bit of housekeeping and then why don't we get into our episode? Yeah, sure thing. We had a great live stream recently. That was last minute switch out. We were so lucky to have a colleague of mine come on last minute and sub for Joni Johnston and completely do an about face on a subject for that episode. And it turned out to be really popular. That That was was very cool. And, you know, folks, we are really glad to be at the next level of producing a podcast. And the next level for us after five years is that we now have the ability to include advertisers, which has been really nice for us. We see it kind of building up. Dr. Shell and I work really hard to cultivate those resources to fund our show. But with this wonderful new opportunity to have ads, we aren't always aware of the localized ads that show up in LA Not So Confidential episodes that are based on the geography of you, the listener. Yeah. So we were recently informed by some listeners, which thank you, thank you, thank you. We love you guys. But this was regarding the placement of an ad that strongly advocated for a particular politician that ran during our review of the 11 minutes documentary about the mass shooting in Las Vegas. And those two things were quite contradictory to each other. Absolutely. We're actually aware that something similar occurred when we covered school shootings. There was an ad for a gun show in a certain part of the country that ran during that episode, which I mean, honestly, at this point, I think there's some kind of weird algorithm that might be picking up on keywords, which is gross that it's happening in this way, (laughs) but it would not surprise me actually. But we want to let you know that our ad team has been wonderful in addressing our concerns, but unfortunately, some things are just really difficult to catch on the front end. However, we're just offering an apology. If, If this was a jarring experience for anyone, we and our team aim to do better and we're learning that system. We'll have to see if this happens if we cover something a third time, but it is high political season and ad season right now. So please bear with us and and we'll just try to do better. And let us know, you know, please please do. We often talk talk about what a great experience we have with our listeners who correct us when we need correcting or provide additional information that we may be missing. And this is really important. So thank you for doing that for us, listener out there. I appreciate it. So a recap of our last week's episode, it was a review of the documentary. 11 Minutes, which was a four-episode production focusing on the victims, survivors, and the first responders involved in the Route 91 Music Festival in Las Vegas. And it is a well-produced, thoughtful, and challenging documentary that takes the viewer on an intimate and harrowing experience of that horrible event through the eyes of the people that survived it. And I, I really feel that it's well worth watching it. Absolutely. 
high ratings from us in that episode if you haven't listened. Definitely. So today we're going to be talking about hoarding. And I think up front, you know, just some con- some things to consider as far as listening with care. We're, we are going to be talking about a murder, but also themes of animal neglect and some situations in which the elderly are in environments that whether or not they're doing it to themselves or by someone else's hand is neglectful and unhealthy. So, you know, if some of those topics, I I think we, it's not dissimilar to our elder abuse episode when we're talking about some of these scenarios. So those are our trigger warnings off the top. So the subject this week is hoarding, as you probably already know from looking at our little advertisement as your podcast downloaded. We're going to be talking about several different examples of how hoarding can develop, starting off as just behaviors into a full-blown disorder or diagnosable disorder even. So as an example, 70-year-old woman in rural Fond du Lac County, Wisconsin, after an officer had been sent out on a welfare check because she missed medical appointments, at least 165 cats were found and removed from her trailer, many of them dead, diseased, or dying. First responders stated that when they arrived, she called out for help and that the filth in the home was over a foot deep. Mm. Well, we also have in recent years here in Los Angeles, kind of an ongoing situation where this home has been on the news with tons of aerial shots of the property where you can just see items completely overrunning the entire property. I mean, spilling out front yard, backyard, driveway, and neighbors have just been beside themselves for for ongoing for a very, very long time. And This really only got traction after there was drone footage taken and you can see the items stacked up all around the home. So finally, LA County filed a public nuisance complaint and lawsuit against this Granada Hills homeowner. And the city of LA even came out, performed some cleanup that cost $12,000, but within months, the junk was back. And it's an ongoing situation that I think locals here are pretty familiar with. And not the only one that is similar to several around the country and also, as we'll be talking about later, it continues to fuel an ongoing television series called Hoarders based yeah. on this these types of events. So it's happening everywhere, probably has been going on for years and years and throughout history. There are even some historical figures, including Michelangelo and Da Vinci that were thought to be hoarders. So it's been around. But of course, now with media, there's the ability to focus on it. So in the beginning, Hoarding wasn't thought of as an individual disorder. It was always related to being a subtype of a diagnosis in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of what we call obsessive compulsive disorder or obsessive compulsive personality disorder. So those two things are actually very different from each other. And over the years, the research has helped clarify and hone down that it actually is its own specific thing. And it's not even really a subtype. It's a completely different drive and motivation from OCD. The American Psychiatric Association went further to clarify that on a basic level, this disorder as a persistent problem in ridding oneself of possessions, that the behavior can lead to clutter and disruption or the individual's ability to use their living space or workspace. And that's just the most base level, right? Yeah, that's like the most narrow definition, (laughs) but it's specific because as anyone who's a watcher of the show Hoarders knows hoarding can quickly become an overwhelming disorder that branches into many areas of the person's life. Many times obsessive thoughts and compulsions are also present. 
including the motivation to always be ready for any type of disaster. Wait, I kind of feel like that's a dig at me. <laughs> Prepper Shiloh, hang on, hang on. Whoa. Mm, wait, okay. Hold on now. I feel triggered. <laughs> there's there's a lot of things in here that I'm like, oh God, is that me? But I no, think everybody's I... going to relate to a little bit of this. <laughs> really, seriously. I think so too. To, uh, it's just it's total sidebar today. My husband's redoing the area of our like outdoor gym where I keep all my prepper stuff. He's like, hey, did you throw away those solar panel backpacks? And I was like, no, they're in the bin marked, <laughs> marked for light and energy where all the emergency stuff is. <laughs> anyway, sorry, tangent. <laughs> so... <laughs> looking at the motivation to always be ready for a disaster where the individual then stockpiles items that they will never really use in fear of running out of them. Now I'm very good at rotating my food products and using them before they expire. So. Well, I think that's a good differentiation though, between prepping and hoarding. Yeah. And I wouldn't Thank even say you. that you're like a full-on prepper no. compared to some of the preppers that were have been seen on the Learning Channel and other shows oh, that God, focus no. on that. Those are like, that's very different. You're just kind of, you've got a couple of bug out bags and yeah. you're ready to go, right? In, in every car and <laughs> every office. Yes. Okay, I don't want to know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so compulsive hoarding is different from collecting also because the items are not displayed, nor do they necessarily have any value. So I think that might put some listeners at ease too, with people with their Funko Pops and whatever else you guys right. are collecting and displaying. But eventually a person with a hoarding disorder may not be able to even move freely throughout their space because of the items. So until recently, hoarding disorder did not really receive much attention. The DSM previously listed hoarding, like we said, as a subtype or a feature of other disorders. And now the most recent update of the DSM-5 placed hoarding disorder in its own category. And it represents a real challenge and difficulty in getting rid of, discarding, or parting with belongings because of an individual's belief or their perceived need to hold on to them. So an individual with this disorder will experience high levels, significant levels of distress, even at the thought of divesting themselves of these possessions. They engage in excessive accumulation of items, regardless of any actual value or whether the objects are actually worth anything. So what happens is that the individuals create an emotional bond to possessions or belongings that either have significant monetary or emotional value historically, or they have no value at all. One of the acute dangers of hoarding disorder is that it can cause so much impairment in the living conditions, like you said, Dr. Shiloh, that those places are now being filled to capacity with garbage or stacks of clutter so that that individual can't navigate safely through their home. And hoarding can range from very, very severe cases all the way across the spectrum to minimal or moderate. However, if it exists at minimal or moderate, there's always the chance that it can become severe. Right, because it's got to escalate at some point. This isn't something that just happens overnight. Right. You're not finding yourself stepping over boxes of Funko Pops just on a whim. So there are examples where active hoarding may not have that much of an impact on an individual's life, while in others, it can really significantly impair an individual's ability to function on a day-to-day -day basis. So this is very much the spectrum for the individual. Hoarders many times 
don't see it as a problem, which makes addressing the treatment protocol and specific needs really, really challenging. And again, I think people were probably thinking back to episodes they've seen of hoarders where the professionals working with the individuals are almost trying to convince them and list out the reasons why this is a problem. Yeah. In in the best case scenario, a potential client can be directed towards developing insight in this way and an understanding of how their behaviors have negatively impacted their lives and really the lives of those around them, including neighbors and family members. Because if people stop visiting you or your neighbors are now calling you know, the city or the county on you, that's going to start disrupting your life, whether you think it's a problem or not. Yeah. Or if you do have insight into the fact that you've got a problem, then you may start isolating and, and doing things, creating a world that is so isolated so that your family members or friends don't know that it's happening. I remember one episode of Hoarders was a college professor, a very well-respected college professor, and she had worked out this whole routine where she would shower at the university and dress mm. because she couldn't even, didn't even have a working bathroom in her home anymore. So there's a lot of uh, effort being channeled into keeping this a secret. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of shame and embarrassment there if they do have the insight. The first symptoms of hoarding disorder start with a gradual buildup of clutter and difficulty throwing things away. Generally, this behavior can start in the teens or early adulthood. And as the individual grows older, they can continue to collect or acquire belongings for which they really have no use. And we see that there seems to be a significant increase in symptomology by the time an individual meets middle age. The individuals feel a need Need to save items and become upset by the thought of discarding them. This leads then to the building up of clutter to the point where rooms in the home become unusable or even dangerous living spaces. This is then the point when implementing treatment can become really difficult because some hoarders absolutely do not have insight into these behaviors and their condition, and they will make great attempts to hide it from the attention of other people. So they don't even, how can people help if they don't even know that there's a problem? And if they don't think it's a problem, then they're not asking for help. I think these are just multiple hurdles right. that we're looking at because I could see someone having insight and being so embarrassed. They don't even know the resources, like who, who's out there to help with this. So the person, so by the time an agency or a family member actually gets involved or becomes aware of how bad it is, it's already at the severe level. It's, yeah. it's past the moderate level where you could have intervened. Right, right. Individuals who have hoarding disorder also can often save these belongings because they really truly believe that the items are unique or have value or will be needed at some point in the future. And like we said before, they've created an emotional bond with these items. The belongings may represent their memory of a happier time or more successful or fulfilling periods in their lives. Individuals with hoarding disorder may very well feel safer when they're surrounded by belongings that they have accrued. One of the most significant factors is that hoarders commonly do not want to waste anything. And this disorder is very different from just your run-of-the-mill collecting. So when you're comparing it to people who have collections like stamps or antiques or refrigerator magnets, the collectors will usually have specific categorizations and displays of them. And while the collections can be large with hoarding, they're generally disorganized, cluttered, or not well-respected, if I can even use that term. So it's like, I need all of these special mint coins from the Franklin Mint. 
I'm going to keep ordering them and keep ordering them, but they're not collected. They're not ordered in any fashion. They're not organized. They are not, it's not a collation of any type. They're just sort of spread around the house. If they're even taken out of the boxes, because I've seen sort of this combination of hoarding and compulsive shopping. Yes. where they're ordering things or, you know, when it used to be really big, when I saw this, when I was working as a police officer and going into people's homes was when QVC was a big thing Yeah, and people would just sit there and watch and order. And there'd be boxes that were never opened, just brought into the home of stuff. Yeah. And we'll get into that a little bit later about what that is, about what sort of button that pushes in a person's yeah. brain. But collectors generally don't have an experience of impairment or impediment to their lives, even though you can walk into a collector's home, quote unquote, and you will see a lot of clutter. I definitely have seen that before. So in this phenomenon of hoarding, even though the items may have an emotional attachment, they're rarely organized, or they can even be left to decompose or rot or break. They're not really taken care of because the person is so overwhelmed in that environment, that the act of gathering all these objects is not translated into care of the objects or understanding what the objects could be used for or what their purpose is. It could be some sort of nebulous future plan. Even broken appliances and unreadable books may very well have some kind of emotional attachment just from touching them. So Mm -hmm. they've got a collection of broken mixers that are never, ever going to be fixed and the person can't throw them away. So the object itself is secondary to the obsession with the significance that the hoarder feels. Yeah. And hoarding extends beyond just the collection of belongings. There's the hoarding of animals, and that has become all too common for many people, as as we'll cover in our case study. And individuals who hoard animals on a large scale can collect dozens and dozens of pets These animals may be confined inside the home or outside in cages, but because of the large numbers, it's usually not possible for the hoarder to care for the animals to the level that they need for a quality life. And at this point, hoarding can easily become criminal because it is endangering the lives of animals at that point. So when we look at risk factors for hoarding, there are quite a few significant ones. And when we look at risk factors in this sense, what we mean is that we look at a group of individuals who have been diagnosed diagnosed with this disorder. And then we go backwards and kind of say, what are the things that they have in common? What are those factors that if they start to cluster in this way means that someone maybe who hasn't been on the radar before could be susceptible or potentially diagnosed with this. So the risk factors are that it starts, we we said teenage years, it's actually pretty pinpointed to starting around age 11 to 15. And a separate risk factor is that it tends to get worse with age. Also, it's more common in adults than in younger adults. Again, I think that just kind of fits with the theme of severity. As people get older, they get their own spaces. They're able to have their own habits and hide it from other people, perhaps. It's actually more common in men. So we look at these risk factors at about four to 6% of the population kind of falls in between there. But of course, there is a huge spectrum of severity within that. It's very important to note that severity is related, as we've seen in the research and statistically, to household income. So people with lower incomes may be more likely to engage in hoarding. And we also see that these individuals have a tendency towards indecisiveness, perfectionism, 
avoidance, procrastination, and problems with planning and organizing. And I mean that as a whole. I didn't mean to lump that with people with lower income have those traits. Yes, I mean, good, people good that we're talking. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't want that to follow up and sound weird, but individuals who have are at risk for being hoarders have these tendencies. So as more and more research and studies are done on hoarders, probably because of the ongoing popularity of the television show, because I think we can't downplay the impact that that actually had bringing it to the masses. There is more pointing to elements of personality and also family history when we're looking at what psychology sort of contributes to all of this. Let's talk about obsessive compulsive personality disorder because it's also indicated in this as well as the family history. If there's a family member who has a hoarding disorder, it's likely that another family member could likely have it as well. It's also known historically that some people develop hoarding disorder after experiencing traumatic or stressful events that could involve events such as losing all their possessions in a fire or a divorce, an addiction, the death of a loved one, or a globally traumatic event such as something like the Holocaust. So you have these behavioral ways in which we're seeing trauma manifest or we're seeing grief and loss manifest in hoarding type behaviors. And clearly the, those are a spectrum of events too and, and, and personalized and experienced by each individual in a very different way. One of the things when we were doing the research for this, there is some very fascinating research about the first generation of survivors of the Holocaust who immigrated to the U.S., especially in larger cities like New York. They saw a, a really significant increase as the survivors got older in hoarding, like always having to save things because they went through this horrific, horrific experience of basically everything that they had ever owned being taken away from them. So it's, of course, a yeah. trauma response and the body responds in, in very strange ways, but it doesn't mean that you have to have experienced something as horrific as that. It could have been something sure. smaller, but still personally very challenging for you. So Again, it's its own disorder, but there are other things that can be related to hoarding that can be also a comorbid diagnosis like depression disorders or anxiety disorders. Like we said, OCD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and also the medical disorder, dementia. So when we look at that particular area of medical issues, there can be physical changes in the brain that cause memory loss, impaired judgment, confusion about the need for objects. And like you said earlier, a creating safety. One of the things that people with onset of dementia can engage in is this behavior called rummaging so that they're just going through. It's like it brings them a sense of comfort to go through their things over and over again. But because they're slowly losing cognitive ability, they may be actually engaging in disorganizing things that in years past they took really good care of. They may then hide them and they're all doing these things for a sense of security. It's one of the things when somebody is moved into assisted living or someone passes away and they're home, the, the family comes in, they'll find money hidden in books, they'll find jewelry hidden in the walls, because as the elderly person has gotten more and more isolated and lost cognitive function, they may have also had an increase in paranoia. And when memory is impaired to the extent that they're no longer able to recognize the people around them, that may also motivate them to hide their belongings. And then, like we said, there's this sense of comfort that they get from touching and going through their belongings. Memory deficits can also create an inability to remember 
taking the items, moving the items around or hiding them. So then that increases the level of anxiety around not being able to find the objects. So the act of hoarding for a person diagnosed with any form of dementia may be more likely to happen in the early and middle stages of that disease. And it often emerges from the patient trying hard to still have some control in their lives when they're experiencing this cognitive decline they're not able to control their thoughts. They're not able to control their memory and they're paranoid about their environment. Mm. Speaking of environment, there's some environmental causes. So that wanting to feel like you're in a safe environment, you're getting more and more scared about. I remember my mom, when she started declining, she developed some very bizarre beliefs about some of the neighbors. And we did have some like little annoying as hell neighbors at the time. Who doesn't? Who doesn't, right? But she would say things. I remember one time before we even knew what was happening, I remember my mom saying, oh, that woman over there is talking about us, Miss So-and-so. Mm -hmm. And she was half a block away. My mother's yeah. no way they could have heard that. And like, But it's just something you don't really notice because it's such a gradual onset of the, the situation. So then again, that dementia can also contribute to the inability to distinguish between items that should be kept or thrown away. And what makes this worse, especially in an elderly population, is that there's lack of stimulation, there's boredom, there's difficulty initiating new activities. So what they're caught on is just a repeat cycle of everything that they've been doing up until now. Yeah. Or I could see just obtaining more things kind of feels like something to do. Right. Also. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get into some of the types of hoarding. <laughs> Again, I feel like some of these might be me. <laughs> no, I, I say that in jest because, you know, there are moments where we hear a certain diagnosis and we go, oh my gosh, that's so me. And it really isn't right. Like we sit back and we go, okay, we need to take note that maybe we have our little quirks here and there, but these are individuals that are really suffering with something that rises to the level of a diagnosis that needs to be taken seriously as and, well. And like you were saying earlier, you know it when you walk in and you see yeah. this, you really Absolutely. know that this is the real deal. This is not just clutter. This is not just getting distracted over the last couple of months. This is, no. you know, very, very serious. Right. So before we move into the, the categories, just remember, as keep these in mind, that hoarding can be motivated by a number of different factors, and it can take many forms and therefore lead to a lot of different outcomes and specific behaviors. So as more research develops, hoarding has been broken down into several categories, the first one being animal hoarding. So animal hoarding may very well begin with good intentions, perhaps even of wanting to rescue animals from shelters or helping strays, which... God bless the people that do that yes. because to be able to open your home to an animal that, you know, you don't know where it's going to end up and those emotional connections that get made, it's, it's a tough thing to do, but I know people have really big hearts. This can really get out of control if the wrong set of factors are also present. Animal hoarding can also stem from someone who has less beneficial intentions, such as people who intend to make a quick buck by illegal breeding or just sort of flipping of these animals, if that's... That sounds like a gross term to use, but you get the idea of what I mean. And these people can easily slip into animal hoarding too. So it, it could be, again, this constant collection. And I think as we've talked about with just hoarding in general, can quickly get out of control where 
you become overwhelmed. Right. And then, you know, that sharing that idea about the wanting to make a buck. I mean, there's an example on the show Hoarders that I remember that was particularly poignant because the guy was so distressed. It was an elderly gentleman. I mean, not well, no, probably under 65. And he lived in a rural area on a large property. And all he did was he kept buying old farm equipment. And when he was asked why, he said, well, this is my legacy for my grandkids is I'm going to sell all this so that they make money. And an appraiser came in and had to like, they had to gently tell him this isn't worth anything. You Mm. keep bringing just because you have this enormous 6,000 pound rusting tractor, the, the scrap metal is not even worth having it on your property anymore. So once again, the wires can get crossed. So someone who's an animal breeder, you know, may have unrealistic expectations of what their illegal activity is going to generate for them. Yeah, very true. So another category is book hoarding, which I didn't know was a thing. Again, taking a little bit of offense to that. But this involves people who are highly invested in having information at arm's length. People with the type of book hoarding that we're talking about, sometimes called bibliomania, will save newspapers, books, files, all the above, even if it's very unlikely that they will ever use them again. So it's just having it to have it, to have this tangible information source to where you can get it at any point in your home or wherever this may be. So, you know, this is much different, I think, for a lot of us that know that we can essentially jump on our computer and look anything up whenever we want and not having to have it in our hand. I think that there's also a subtype. Well, it's no, I'm not even going to say that it's part of hoarding, but I know that coffee table books become Uh, very popular. And it's like at some point I am going to flip through this or I'm going to read it. But then when I've gone into homes of hoarders back in the day, when I first started doing community work and I would see stacks and stacks and stacks of newspapers Mm -hmm. and we would ask like, well, so what are your plans for these? He goes, oh, well, these are, these are going to be really important to donate to the library. We're like, well, the library already has those. Like it's all digital electric. They don't need those anymore. And they, there's a crossed wire there. The individual just can't make the connection that it has no value. Kind of like the, the farm equipment example I Mm -hmm. gave. So there's also shopper hoarding, which you were talking about with the QVC example, and that coincides with binge shopping. So the motivation could very well be to engage in what started out as retail therapy or what we call as retail therapy, but then the satisfaction (laughs) level tends to be less and less, although they continue to engage in these behaviors. So the law of diminishing returns is kind of the way we describe that. Shopping hoarders can focus on any type of object, collectibles, photos, clothing, food, home appliances, home decor. And many times, like you said earlier, these items will remain in their packages unopened with the price tags attached. And sometimes people will buy multiples. And it was more common back in the early days of the home shopping network and QVC prior to the internet. And a big part of that is the para relationship that viewers would make with these hosts. You know, they would always fascinating. Part of it is that ongoing patter, like where you never stop talking and you're talking about like, well, this, this particular wrap sweater just changed my life and I'm going to get five different ones. And there's a great series right now with Vanessa Bayer from Saturday Night Live called I Love That For You. It's so good because it's all about like the backbiting between hosts for shopping network. No. Yeah. Oh my god, It's really good. It's wow. really funny. And there's one scene that's a, like where you see a hoarder's house that has just kept 
one of everything that's ever been sold. It's kind oh of Oh my amazing. goodness. Wow. So there's also food hoarding. And this is really particularly dangerous because people may ingest food that's gone bad. And this can also overlap with eating disorders that that individual sure. may be experiencing. Many food hoarders develop an inability to discern what foods are appropriate for eating and what foods have rotted. There were several episodes of hoarding where they were talking to people who had a wildly incorrect assumption about what could be eaten from their refrigerator and what couldn't. And one woman was unable to recognize mold growing on her food. She goes, oh, no, 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 that's fine. You can just scrape it off. It's not until it puffs up. It's not until the chicken oh, starts wow. swelling that you can't eat it. I mean, just completely, no, this, and the guy was trying to tell her, no, if you eat this, you're going to get salmonella and die. Wow, that's a huge cognitive distortion. Completely, example. yeah. Wow. And then, of course, there's trash hoarding. That extends to going through neighbors and neighborhood trash bins in order to find things that they will seemingly attach meaning or emotion to. There's always like a reason, oh, I can do this with this piece of whatever. Many mm -hmm. times it's a very quick process where the individual convinces themselves that at some point it is going to be of value to them. And one of the dangers is not being able to discern what is trash and what objects themselves may actually have some value or what is going to decompose and attract vermin. And vermin, rats, mice, silverfish, cockroaches, all sorts of vermin. It's a very, very big deal in the phenomenon and decontrol of hoarders. So paper hoarder seems like it could fit into some other categories, like you were saying, maybe books, maybe bibliomania, but it's the it's a division of paper hoarding specifically when it refers to that inability to throw away expired bills, invoices, magazines, receipts, recipes, junk mail, kind of mass produced photos, these type of things that can really rot very quickly. And then they cause fire damage within the home or they oh, represent yeah. the potential for fire damage. It's basically turning your apartment or your home into a complete tinderbox. Yeah. Just kindling everywhere. This, this would never be me drives me nuts to have like mail <laughs> on the counter for half a day. Right. <laughs> but yeah, this, this is like those more meaning, not meaningful. Oh, there I go. Attaching meaning personal, perhaps paperwork that just, again, I might need this one day. Right. So even if it's filed away, but still there's some point you need to clean those out as well. So let's talk about diagnostic criteria here. The first thing that we have to hit is that the individual has the ongoing difficulty with disposing of possessions, even when they are not valuable. Secondly, they have to have a strong belief that the objects and items must be saved. Now fill in the blank for whatever reason that is for that individual. That can differ, of course, but that belief that it has to be saved has to be there to some degree. And then there is the component where the individual has to experience or suffer some distress over getting rid of those possessions or the idea of getting rid of the possessions. So it's not just that you come in, you go, okay, you're having a hard time throwing these things away. Let me help you. You throw all the stuff away and they're like, okay, cool. My life's better. No, they're, they're going to be in distress over it. Otherwise it might not be something that would need to rise to the level of its own disorder. And then also we rule out a couple of things. Hoarding can't be due to the consequence of some sort of medical problem, like a traumatic brain injury that results in these behaviors. And this gets complicated because you did a lovely job talking about dementia and how that can 
combine with some of these behaviors and dementia is considered a medical diagnosis. So it's, it's about teasing these out and seeing maybe what came first and again, how they're just sort of interacting with each other and, and triaging the level of need for this person, whatever that's their a, medical diagnosis is. That's a really good point that you make because a person who is exhibiting hoarding behaviors that doesn't have, you know, dementia impairment or cognitive impairment in that way, you can start a treatment protocol. You can yeah. give oh, them yeah. medication. There are interventions, whereas it's only going to be interventions for the person who is having a brain injury or dementia because there yeah. is no long-term treatment because they're generally that's a descending order of functioning in someone sure. who has dementia. Right, right. And then, you know, finally, it just can't really be a direct result of any medical conditions. It, it, that's a pretty broad statement to make, but it's also one that you see on most diagnoses in the DSM is that we need to realize that this is a psychological issue and not a medical issue. It's just making that final differentiation. And that's very frustrating for me because I look at that sometimes and I go, well, that's just for billing's sake. <laughs> you know, well, you know, yeah. I mean, a lot of times it's, I mean, well, checkbox. Yeah, it's a it's something to tick off so that we can know what funding stream and in your insurance, if anything, is going to be paying for that. But so we have five stages of hoarding that are outlined in our research notes and many articles that we pulled for this. They're fascinating. Would love to refer people to those to our page to read them if you're interested, because it's fascinating stuff. There is a new area of study about the psychology of hoarding, and there's a lot of discussion in the community about what the drive is. And it has been this way for a long time with some people saying it's psychological ownership theory, that it's people who are hyper sentimental and they are the ones that also will just buy all that impulse stuff that like checkouts at stores and stuff. And that they view things as part of their identity. And then the things that they collect are required for a feeling of safety. There's attachment theory. Attachment theorists say that it's as a result of being brought up as a child with anxious or avoidant attachment styles, and this is their way of coping. And then there's a constructivist point. Here's the thing. There's new research that kind of puts all that way to the side. And we're going to talk about that in a second. I'm going to leave that to you because that gets really into the hard, fast research. But I want to touch on the medical problems that can be caused by hoarding. The really big one is respiratory issues over oh, and over God, yeah. again, the clutter, the trash, the animal or human waste or fecal matter that builds up from hoarding can really impact the air quality in a closed environment. And that is very, very, very bad, including, and this is awful because I used to have a game when I watched hoarders is like, okay, how many dead cats are they going to find? Yeah in this yeah. house and there would be they'd pick up like three layers of trash like like sediment layers and then they'd find a dead crushed cat i'm so psychosomatic when it comes to my asthma like i can watch an episode of hoarders and start to feel yeah. my chest no, no, that's, that's very common for people with asthma to have yeah. that kind of reaction because your body you're having mirror neurons you know you're mm -hmm. picking up that thing but the problem is especially with cat fecal material and this is actually for anybody that is a cat owner you have to stay on top of cleaning that cat litter box because i love cats i mean believe me i think cats are so cool i mean i love them in a completely different way that i love dogs but cat fecal matter can also cause a condition called toxoplasmosis and if it is it is a, a fungal and a bacterial infection once it gets in your system it is very very dangerous and can actually cause psychosis 
So if you're not regularly cleaning out your cat litter box, please get on that because it's very dangerous. Huge warning for pregnant women. Oh, yeah. um, Yeah. Definitely. It's like you you do not clean a litter box when you're pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, that's a good excuse. That's great. Yeah. It's a great excuse. <laughs> but aside from just that awful or that sort of particulate matter that can come from fecal matter, there's also the problem of the ammonia that is generated oh, from animal gosh. waste. High levels of ammonia from that waste can also lead to respiratory issues. It can also lead to respiratory failure and it can impact brain functioning. And so lack of sanitation increases the risk of infectious diseases. It can cause gut problems like diarrhea and like full body allergic reactions. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know where that Are you okay? From. Are you having an allergic reaction right and now? And then, of course, the <laughs> medical problem that actually is sort of related to the physical problems and limitations of hoarding is that uh, people may have a risk of falling tripping or being crushed by falling piles of books or whatever is piled up, eating rotten food, so food poisoning, and then also something that we have really come to know in the modern world as being very dangerous is the presence of black mold. Black mold in a person's home from not cleaning, not being able to get to all those corners of the room or the bathroom, very, very dangerous. Yes. Yes. You've painted a really grim picture of- (laughs) It's gross. I'm sorry. The health- problems that stem from this, but of course, right? It just all completely makes sense, whether it's just stuff or where there's animals involved in the the living space. So you guys know that we, of course, love the most recent research. And this is an area that is starting to look at distinct brain activity in hoarders. I feel like everything that is up and coming is looking at structure of the brain now that we know how to image it and map it well. So it's very exciting. So what they're finding is people who are hoarders have certain brain regions that are significantly lower in activity and activation in various circumstances. In other words, it's underactive when they deal with other people's possessions, but overactive when they're attempting to decide whether or not they will or can discard their own belongings. Interesting. Such interesting stuff. Dr. David Tolan of Hartford Hospital and Yale University used MRIs to evaluate and investigate whether or not a neural basis existed for hoarding disorder. And in his study, he compared the brains of clients with hoarding disorder to patients with OCD and then to a otherwise healthy control group. The test involved the sorting of junk mail. Pretty easy thing to do in a lab setting and see how these different brains light up in these different groups. So the MRI revealed that hoarders differ from both healthy controls and patients with OCD in two specific brain regions, the anterior cingulate cortex and the insula. Neuropsychologists and other medical disciplines currently believe that these areas are part of a brain network involved in how humans process emotion, which makes total sense. Both regions were more active in hoarders when they were making decisions about mail that belonged to them, but less active when making decisions about mail that didn't belong to them. That's kind of how I sort through my husband's and my mail too. <laughs> I see your face. I know you're you're <laughs> relating there. So they believe that these brain abnormalities are specific to hoarding and separate the disorder from OCD, which is great research and data because we previously had just kind of lumped it all together. Dr. Tolan says that, quote, they lose the ability to make relative judgments. So the decision becomes absolutely overwhelming and adverse to them. That brain network goes into hyperdrives, starts freaking out, 
and the task seems to overload the network, end quote. Sums it up. It really does. I got to tell you, like, I mean, really in all seriousness, like that to me describes what it's like having ADD or ADHD mm. for me is that I, you know, I can go into ADD flow, but I can also tell you that I've had that experience where it's just too much information, too much input, and everything overloads my network. And I'm just kind of sitting there and dissociating, trying to figure out yeah. like, okay, wait, I got to prioritize. I got to reboot the system. So I can only imagine like my relatively benign version of that, as opposed to someone with full-blown hoarding disorder, it must be incredibly difficult. Well, and it would be so interesting to know the differences when we look at the brains as you start comparing it to different disorders, because this one really seems to have an emotional component to it, right? right? Where yours might not, it might just literally be too much data in and overriding the network on a different level. That's not necessarily emotional, but this one with this study we can say is. Yeah. So when subjects were presented with that object that didn't belong to them, Again, they showed lower activity in the brain regions than the non-hoarder's brains on those MRI scans. But when they were presented with an object that the hoarder actually owned, their brains showed excessive signals on that scan, which was very different from the control groups. And then another study has shown an increase in the actual amount of prefrontal gray matter volume in people with hoarding disorder as compared to obsessive compulsive disorder individuals. Hoarders had higher volume of gray matter when compared to those with a strict diagnosis of OCD. And so what's really wild is that the OCD and non-OCD control group had no discernible difference in their volume of gray matter. So mm. there's actually even a structural difference. Yep. Not just the way yep. it's firing and lighting up, there's a structural difference. So now we just have to do more research to figure out which came first. Were they predisposed to this because of their brain structure or do the repetitive behaviors start changing the brain structure? So interesting. It's fascinating. Yes. So treatment, treatment for hoarding. Usually there's individual treatment that involves psychotherapy and perhaps some medications, but there's a variety of therapeutic treatment options out there that are used with this disorder. You could even do group cognitive behavioral therapy in conjunction with medication, which shows to decrease symptoms and distress. So not just tackling it one-on-one -on -one with CBT, but, you know, kind of putting you in the same boat with other people, probably in sort of this hybrid support group but also changing behaviors together. That's really interesting to learn. And of course, the challenge then remains, does the hoarder even have the insight to know that there's a problem? And if so, what personal barriers might be present that prevent or discourage engagement and treatment? So as we've already talked about with all the different ways in which people come to the table with their own experiences, I mean, you might be having to tackle trauma first, you might be having to tackle addiction first and foremost, which we like to do with almost anything, or of course, any medical issues before you even jump in right. to some of the cognitive behavioral stuff. I'm always fascinated by the controversy about the efficacy of antidepressant medication out on the market, or even some antipsychotic medication is that there are just people crowing that it doesn't work or we don't know how it works. And those are always, if you if you dig past the title of the article, you find out that there's a lot of opinion being talked about. And there are some people that absolutely are treatment resistant to sure. medication. But 
study after study shows that the best outcomes for many mental health challenges comes from a combination of individual talk therapy, group therapy, in conjunction with medication. And I could even go so far as to say, I would bet in a group situation for a hoarder, there is that thing that is really helpful in the process of group. When you see something mirrored in another person that you were experiencing, you can have two things that happen simultaneously. You can have a joining with them. That is a sense of compassion or familiarity, like, oh, I get what that's about. And simultaneously going, but mine is not like that at all. Sure. Yeah. So that's actually like a really good fertile ground for doing some good work because in a, an appropriate group setting, your peers in that group are challenging you. That's the whole beauty of group therapy is that right. you're creating a safe space where these interpersonal relationships can continue to become more profound and you develop a sense of trust and somebody can call you on your stuff and you can take it in. So I can see where that would be really helpful. Everyone's at a different phase of the stages of change. Yes. So that's, it's, it's nice to go, oh my gosh, I'm the new person that's just here pre-contemplating all of this. And there's other people to sort of help you through. And then that person becomes the person that's helping the next yeah. new guy to go in. It's really Absolutely. a beautiful process. So we have some examples of criminal activities in April, yep. 2022. A police officer was forcing 66-year-old John B. Omichel III out of his home due to eviction processes that had emerged from Omichel's extreme hoarding. Omichel actually set his home on fire during the eviction process. His hoarding of trash and other items had reached the point that his floors were no longer visible and the extreme conditions made a wildly dangerous environment for that fire hazard. And Omichel, in his anger, put police officers and firefighters in danger while they were responding to displays. So initially, law enforcement engaged with Omichel at his home and had what was described in the news reports as a quote-unquote cordial conversation. Omichel agreed to gather just a few of his belongings and then return to the door to leave with the officers. After a period of time of him being in his house and going through things, it was described in the reports as a number of minutes by the police, Omichel walked outside and smoke began rising from the home. Mm. Police noted at the time that Omichel had soot around his nostrils, but he refused medical assistance while avoiding eye contact. So he was in the midst of this setting the fire and stayed yeah. there long enough to actually get soot on his face right. before he even came out. Investigators determined that an open flame could not have been ignited without human interaction in the situation. And as Omichel was the only person in the home that day, he was charged with four counts of arson, Jeez. risking catastrophe, a felony count of criminal mischief and two counts of recklessly endangering another person. And it's notable that these are felonies and represent a particular subset of hoarders that go beyond just having an emotional connection to their belongings. It's also an aspect of anger that mm -hmm. morphs into criminality along the lines of, if I can't have it, no one else can, or at least if I, if I can't have it, I'm going to control what happens to it. So wow. that's what's interesting here is that like this is, you know, you don't immediately think of hoarders and criminal activity, no. but there is some criminal thinking that happens as a result of this disorder. Yeah. Some, well, I was going to say impulsivity, but maybe not. Maybe he was like, if this comes to eviction, this is what I'm doing. And he could have very well 
had it planned. Yeah, desperation that just sure. over overrides any sense of responsibility to the community and responsibility to the safety of the people that are standing on your front porch. It's just a sad situation all Very, the way around. Yeah. So this other example is from October of 2014, a while ago, but after a two and a half year process of eviction, here we go again, 67 year old Joseph Corey of Florida was found guilty of first degree murder for the killing of an animal control officer by the name of Roy Markham following an attempt to extract and evict him from his home. So Corey had hoarded a number of possessions including eight dogs and two cats, and had been involved in a years-long battle with the city about the neglect of his property and concern for the welfare of his animals. So because the animals are involved, there's a number of agencies, I'm sure, that are involved here. So what happened is that he shot animal control officer Roy Markham through his front door with a hunting rifle. Mm. And his defense team said that throughout the trial that Corey lacked the mental capability to plan to kill Markham and that the crime occurred as a result of his diagnosis. So the deputy district attorney, William Satchel, however, laid out a case scenario to present that Corey had returned to his locked house following a November 27, 2012 eviction, entered against the eviction ruling, and then armed himself with a 45 hunting rifle. Satchel then asserted that Corey then waited at the top of the stairs for Markham and the accompanying bank representatives to arrive the following day because he knew they'd be out there. And while the bank representatives accompanying Markham were wounded from shrapnel as well, the gun blast killed Markham. The trial included testimony from psychologist Robin Zazio, who's known for her reoccurring work on the television show Hoarders. And Corey had been told by city officials that he either needed to find a home for his pets before they were removed by Sacramento County Animal Control, or he needed to make arrangements with Animal Control to retrieve the animals at a later date. Markham, unfortunately, was shot point blank in the chest. He was not wearing a bulletproof vest at the time. He's an animal control officer. I have never seen an animal control officer wear a bulletproof vest. I mean, I'm guessing on a high risk situation, they might, but that would probably rise to the level of just sending law enforcement if you knew it was going to be that dangerous. Again, not victim blaming, just saying he didn't know the level of severity here. And this is what they were walking into. Sadly and ironically, just a few months before his murder, Markham had asked his employer for a bulletproof vest. So he knew he was going into these situations that really weren't sitting well with him and he felt like he needed more protection. It's a very sad case as well, where someone lost their life because someone thought that was their last resort. And he was convicted of first degree murder. So yeah, they yeah. were able to set like as, as much as the defense attorney was trying to set up like, oh, no, this is part of his diagnosis. They were saying it may be very well part of his diagnosis, but he did make a plan. He engaged in lying in wait right, in order right. to ambush this guy. Very Do you recall sad. what the diagnosis was? Was there something other than hoarding or they didn't detail? talk. I didn't see anything in that, you know, I couldn't get trial transcripts, but I was, so I was using a lot of the articles from around that time. Mm -hmm. And the frustrating thing when we do this research is that these articles are basically just cutting and pasting from each other. I know. So you yeah. got to be really careful because I can have five articles and go, oh yay, I've got all this information. And it's like, oh no, you're basically just moving yep. some commas around. It's the same thing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit more in depth about 
Headquarters, the television show. So it started in 2009 on A&E and a New York Times magazine article described Hoarders as quote, routinely repulsive, harrowing, and unnerving, which kind of runs the gamut. And it's true. There's a disclaimer at the beginning of each episode warning that compulsive hoarding is a mental disorder, which is interesting because at the time that this started, it wasn't its own mental disorder. Right. And It's one of those shows that, yeah, it's a bit unnerving because it feels very voyeuristic as a viewer of watching someone with a severe mental health disorder. Yes. But you always sort of are left with the feeling that they're getting help for these individuals. So I think it's one of those carefully crafted things that makes the viewer feel better about watching it. (laughs) But still, you know, at the end of the day, it's entertainment. So it's just there's, there's a lot of conflicting feelings about yeah. a, a television show like this. And it was really a, a huge surprise hit for a and I mean, people were watching in droves like they had not expected. And continue to. You know, it's still, I think it's been on 11 seasons. So it continues to be generated, if I'm not incorrect. Mm, I think it wrapped up in 2019. Finally, oh, okay. But well, yeah. okay. Well, then I have an excuse for saying that because COVID like <laughs> COVID okay. through everything off for me, Use right? It's a COVID thing. <laughs> but, I, you know, about the show, it makes me think of when we did our internship. And if you remember, we had, besides working with, the majority of our work was with sex offenders, but we yeah. also had this group that were people coming out of prison for various charges, but they had been in the mental health areas of the prison had been given diagnosis and had been given medication, but there was a dual diagnosis with them. Most of them had pretty severe histories of substance use. And we, if they missed for some reason, like if they missed one of our group sessions or something, remember the makeup was like, okay, well, here's the makeup two hours. Oh yeah. You have to be in and we would sit in the room with them and watch intervention. Oh yes. Remember we had like that. We had like the 60 CD set of intervention Uh and Uh you and I would be in there being horrified at just like watching this experience of these people destroying their lives. And that felt very voyeuristic, but then you would turn it off and you'd say, okay, well, let's have a discussion about what we just watched and they would go oh yeah that's exactly what it's like you know when i'm in the middle of my use i don't give a shit about anybody like that's secondary so i think that's a really important part of this discussion i mean while hoarders is not a show that i regularly watched i had had seen a good number of episodes and i completely agree there's a voyeuristic feel to the show as well as this like you're questioning yourself are is this exploitation yeah yet there are things you're watching and you see some people on there and i'm not like look some of the talking heads some of the psychologist talking heads i thought were great there were some that i was not impressed by i'll tell you who i was impressed by was the facilitator dorothy brenninger she's a professional organizer and she was on many of the episodes i saw and her clinical acumen not being a licensed mental health professional kind of blew me away. I thought mm. that she was just amazing. I don't know if she comes by it naturally or she just developed it as part of her business skill set, but her kindness and compassion really came across. And she seemed very patient and she was even using verbal techniques that to me are reminiscent of what we call motivational interviewing, sure. where you're not necessarily confronting a person on their behaviors. You're saying, well, let's have a talk about it. Well, what do you think it would be like? What would it be like if this wasn't a big issue in your life? 
you know, so you're trying to construct an alternate reality that a person yeah. can actually anchor to. And she did it kind of naturally. I thought it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So it looks like it ran for six seasons on Annie and then Lifetime picks it up. Okay. Okay. And talk about exploitation. They added like a live stream segment. Oh, I which didn't was know that. Like super gimmicky at some point. And then it got repackaged again as Hoarders family secrets and ran for a few more seasons to 2019. Wow. So, yeah. So I thought it was notable that one of the show's professional home organizers, Matt Paxton, he has been interviewed and he's talked about the all-time worst thing he ever witnessed in all his years on the show. And he said that this one particular home belonged to this sweet little old lady whose refrigerator had been stuffed with the stacked up corpses of her dead cats right alongside her condiments. <laughs> He's like, that was pretty bad. <laughs> Everything I've seen. I mean, yeah. And as, as you know, we're both having sort of this gross out ab reaction of yeah. funeral giggles from something that's really disturbing. But I love the fact that you use the quote where he describes her as a sweet lady. Yeah. And so it's a cognitive distortion. Like these cats were a big part of my life and I have to keep them. And I'm, I'm going to eventually get them taxidermied or, or cremated yeah. or something. But, you know, you just, you make these rationalizations, like we say that the mental gymnastics that come through mm -hmm. on things like this. So it's also been in popular media. CSI had Hoarders episodes, season 11, episode five aired in 2010. And yep. yeah, we can always- House of, House of Hoarders. Right. Great, great title. We should <laughs> title our episode this. I love that there's csifandom.com and it exists for our research purposes. <laughs> Only helps us do our, our job here. I love it. I just love it. So in that episode, officers Akers and Mitchell are called to the house of a woman named Marta Santiago for like a seemingly common occurrence on the show. And when Officer Akers kicks down the front door, it barely moves as it's blocked by a tower of garbage. And then they notice a smell coming from inside that's likely a dead body, leading them to call CSI to the house. So Nick and Sarah arrive on the scene and they enter <laughs> through the back door. They make their way through all these piles of garbage. It's like the, the set decorators must have had a field day oh, going through man. this because Marta is a hoarder. And as they get deeper and deeper into the house, they come across dead cats, live rats, and Nick steps in something. It's a dead body. And when the elderly resident sees the body, she recognizes it as her daughter, Diana, from the dress she's wearing. So oh, the old woman did not even know that her daughter, the reason she couldn't find her daughter anymore is that her daughter had died in the house. So not to spoil it, but there's another body found in the home and they more try than to, one, yeah. there's more than one and they're trying to figure out if there's foul play involved or not. Surprise, there's always foul play Shocker. involved, right? I know it's shocking. <laughs> Oh, that sounds like a good one from 2010. Wow, we've taken you through a lot today. Again, digging up new research on an area that's fairly new in and of itself. I mean, I think that's kind of the cool thing about talking about this disorder is that the way it's been recognized in the last couple of decades. So this is a good journey. Yeah. Cool. So for November, you guys can expect a vintage episode next week. And then we are going to be releasing the audio from our presentation of the Sherry Papini case from this year's True Crime Podcast Festival, which of course we did alongside our friends from Women in Crime. So much fun. Yes. Yeah. We need to collaborate with them more. That like I, I love their how we're on the same wavelength about cases, and yet they bring a completely different aspect to the way Actually, we look at things. I I don't think we can talk about it, but we are doing something with them with another podcaster in a couple of weeks. 
Oh, right. Oop. Remember, we have a recording coming up. Zipping Stay the tuned. lips. Zipping <laughs> the lips. So we're going to be on a break the week of Thanksgiving. However, we will have a live stream on Saturday, November 26th with Brittany and John from the podcast Wicked Deeds. And we're going to be talking about a really interesting case that involves a suspect who has been arrested, but is now diagnosed and experiencing severe symptoms of dementia. Yes, it is such an interesting case that they covered. And we met them at the True Crime Podcast Festival. So we can't wait to chat with them some more. They're lovely. Please listen to their podcast. And then of course, we'll do a documentary review the last week of the month, like normal. Oh, and then we'll be into December by that time. So Yay. yeah. But please folks, check out our social media and put in your calendar when we're doing our live streams. Mm-hmm. Our live streams, I'm I'm very proud of what we're doing on those and the guests that we've been able to entice to come on to our little show. And many times, I mean, we'll have a good handful of viewers in there that are asking wonderful questions and engaging. Yeah. But over and over, we're hearing, I didn't even know that you guys were broadcasting. I would have loved to have been there for the live event. It's so easy to view. It's on YouTube. We're using a new platform that broadcasts directly to YouTube. So please join us there when you get a chance. And we will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks. Thanks. Bye, guys. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience, and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks.